Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Today's Wednesday, March 17th, and today we're going to be give, taking a look at some important questions we've been hearing from international educators the last few days and the implications these stories and the, the types of questions we're asking can have on what we do here in international education. We're going to be looking at three, three questions that we find each week from the various news stories that we've uh, cataloged and put out on our Monday morning newsletter, the All the SMIE News Fit to Share e-newsletter. You can find that uh, a recent copy of this week's edition. I'll be dropping into the comments section on the Facebook page. For those watching on repeats uh, on YouTube channels or on our Facebook page, uh, you can look to the comments section to get that on the Facebook page. Uh, thank you, though, uh, to those that are listening on podcast, uh, various providers that uh, make uh, the Midweek Roundup available each week. Uh, we're glad to be coming to you while you're running, walking, or enjoying your day-to-day -day, uh, work experience or downtime. So thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, for those who haven't uh, been a part of the Roundup before, uh, it's every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We have a live chat about uh, topics of the day uh, in the forms of questions that can help us uh, reframe how we think about international education as it impacts us here in the United States and not only how uh, we deal with uh, various international issues in the U.S., but also how other countries are dealing with uh, various uh, international-related issues. So we'll talk about that in, in a global, uh, through the global lens of what's happening in the world today with the global pandemic and its impact on everything we do uh, in every, almost every phase of life. We've been impacted by the coronavirus in one way or another. Some of us uh, who have gotten uh, our, the vaccine already uh, are feeling much more positive and out, upbeat about the future. Others who are well, well down uh, the list of who might be getting them may be having a different story. And that's the perspective we need on how we view all things uh, that we're dealing with in international education these days is the impact of the pandemic. Just because we're doing well now with vaccine implementation perhaps here in the United States doesn't mean that every country is going to be in that situation. And certainly that'll be part of the longer term impact of uh, the pandemic on our world and on our profession. But let's jump into the first question of the day, and that is, what is the state of U.S.-China student interest these days? Uh, and that's an important one, I think, because this past week there were quite a few different stories that popped up, and we'll cover them and drop the links to most of them in the comments section. But I want to you start this off today because uh, China is kind of ever-present in our minds as international educators. Uh, particularly on the inbound international side, but also for study abroad. Uh, there's no doubt that that uh, has an impact. That country is a massive interest to a number of country, uh, countries and students in various countries around the world. But we look at what's happening with China. We know how dependent many U.S. institutions have become on China for students, international students, going back to the mid-2000s. And this is something that I think we, we look at and see uh, for international educators, it's uh, one of the, our biggest partners uh, economically, uh, but also in education terms, certainly on uh, inbound side, it's been very important. But to, during the Obama administration, there was 100,000 strong initiatives uh, to China. Uh, and that was important uh, in opening the doors for U.S. students to uh, see China as a destination for study abroad. And that, that certainly raised the profile quite a bit. 
with of China in educational terms, in terms of where uh, where uh, institutions uh, place value in relationships and developing those. Uh, what we've seen in the last four years, obviously all the rhetoric of the Trump administration uh, towards China as, a, uh, as the big bad enemy, the new enemy in the room that we need to be focusing much of our attention on, uh, there are still certain elements of that, of that that we're hearing from other sources that the Biden administration's approach towards China will be fairly similar in terms of policy, but will be uh, obviously handled in a much more diplomatic way. Uh, than perhaps the, the Trump administration did, uh, and part of that part of that challenge <clears throat> is dealing with visas, and this is something that uh, when we when we look at the current state of affairs, certainly the state of affairs with uh, U.S. consulates and embassies that have been basically closed uh, for routine services since February last year, over a year now. Uh, we uh, now have huge backlogs of interest of, from Chinese students who still want to come to the United States and pursue their education that haven't been able to go for visas in country. And that's something that's uh, because the U.S. consulates have not been open. <clears throat> now, in conversations with colleagues who work, uh, work in the State Department, uh, the, one of the one of the two kind of elements that go into play that impact an, our U.S. consulate or embassy's ability to be fully open. Uh, first, are in-country uh, permissions that need to be uh, earned or granted in order for uh, the embassies to be able to operate at full capacity to be able to have routine services. Uh, and the other is embassy staffing uh, and willingness to uh, and local decisions on whether to open or not. Uh, now, in China, since, since March, uh, February, March last year, U.S. embassies and consulates have been largely closed. Uh, the availability of emergency appointments for student visas has been there since probably July uh, to late August. Uh, that's when those uh, became available at many of the consulates in China. However, not only, all but one have even availability where students can go to the visa wait times site and see when the earliest visa appointment is being offered. Uh, first one right now is for, I think, August 12th uh, for Guangzhou. Uh, so that is obviously cutting it close uh, for a lot of institutions that would be starting in the fall. Uh, and that is clearly uh, not a tenable situation for U.S. institutions to have a second year, much like Australia is dealing with now, having two academic years in a row where new students have not been able to enter the country to begin their courses and have had to start online if they were to start at all. And right now there is our, our, there's a petition actually out to uh, members of the NAFSA, uh, through the NAFSA member interest group for China uh, that uh, the Pine News did an article on this past week. Uh, it's called China F1 Student Visa Crisis for 2021-2022 School Year. Uh, that uh, the backlog of cases for now 13 months uh, is uh, won't. It's not going to be possible to fit all those students that might want to come to the U.S. Uh, into such a small window of time that is normally already fully booked uh, for student visas from May to uh, through to early September. So this is this is going to be a real, uh, real a story we want to keep a, keep an eye on here, 
And the, there's actually a petition uh, for those that have followed change.org petitions or have used those in the past. There's now an, a, a petition that's uh, closing in on 500 uh, signatures uh, that, is, uh, this, uh, that talks about this alert. It's uh, from Andrew Chen, uh, who is uh, the uh, chief learning officer at Whole Ren Group uh, and vice chair of the China, NAFSA China MIG. Uh, and there, there are appointments. Uh, are are general are occasionally available, but then they're canceled. Uh, in China, this is Andrew's uh, uh, on the ground kind of experience in terms of what's going on there. Uh, Guangzhou is the only one that's, uh, as I mentioned, that's has availability right now, and that's just not going to be uh, possible for all students who want to get visa appointments that for the fall to go in one consulate starting August 12th. Uh, and, and be able to get in and come from all over China to do this. So clearly, something needs to give here. Uh, and we're hoping that uh, there is, a, uh, I've, uh, I've got calls out to uh, some of my colleagues who are in the State Department who can maybe shed a little bit more light on what those two situations are, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, is it local requirements that are, or local regulations that are preventing, uh, preventing the embassies and consulates from being fully open? Part of that in the past has been staffing that staff that were evacuated once the, once the pandemic hit uh, are not, have not been let back into the country. Some of that has happened. Obviously, they've been able to keep some staff, uh, uh, either local, locally hired staff to, 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 uh, to, uh, to maintain the offices, but, all, but not certainly all, their, uh, all the U.S. citizens and permanent resident staff that work these embassies and consulates have been able to get back into the country in order to uh, do their jobs. So that's, that early on was one piece. I don't know if that's still the case, but that, that could be a potential roadblock. The other is, are, are there local requirements, uh, pe uh, COVID protections that need to be in place uh, that uh, I know in other, other countries there's been a lot of retrofitting of uh, the visa areas uh, to make them uh, more, uh, more socially distanced and have policies in place that will meet local regulations. And that, that may be another piece too. Because uh, if, if both of those aren't in sync, and uh, though they, they may have local uh, or they may have a staff ready to go, but the, the local regulations are not rec allowing them to open fully, then that is something we really need to, really need to look at. Uh, if there, if there may be one of the things that may be out there, I'm not saying this is it, but if one of the requirements that there be uh, better monitoring equipment of uh, people coming in and out of embassies, uh, which seems a little bit off because that's sovereign territory for the embassy uh, that, uh, that, is, that is physically there. Uh, it's, it's not that home, the, the, the country where the embassy is located is not uh, territory per se of that, the, that country. It's the country of the embassy. It is uh, kind of, uh, you've seen the spy movies when people are trying to get to the embassies to, to uh, spies trying to get to their embassies to become uh, to be on home to home home territory or home soil. Uh, well, I don't know what the details are, and I'm not going to not going to speculate any further there. But there could be uh, requirements that the Chinese government is putting on embassies in terms of how they can open, uh, and that might be uh, might be something to uh, to look at down the road. And uh, as soon as I have any information back on what the real story is and what it's likely to be, I'll certainly share that with you here. Uh, so we've got the visa issue right now, and obviously that's that's a very significant one. We all need to be aware of, but we also have um, a, a, a series of, of stories that may be indicating, uh, as Karen Fisher, a very prominent 
chronicle uh, chronicle writer uh, at uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed who has followed uh, the Chinese student journeys, uh, many Chinese student journeys in the United States, uh, going back to her, her work with Michigan State and uh, University of Illinois and following uh, groups of students as they have from China who have come to the United States. Uh, so she's been well immersed in this field for a number of years. Uh, her one of her recent stories this week was is the end of is this the end of the romance between Chinese students and American colleges, and she lays out a fairly actually convincing case that uh, there uh, that obviously we've we had a peak in 20, 2017, 2018 in terms of Chinese students in the United States, uh, where one in three international students is uh, in America right now. International students are from China. Uh, and obviously the college, colleges embrace these students for a variety of reasons. Uh, the cultural diversity they brought to campus, tuition revenue obviously, and that, that, op that drives a lot of institutions and their bottom lines. Uh, that uh, right now uh, that relationship has been faltering uh, for a number of reasons. COVID has certainly not helped. Uh, the, uh, the, there's also, uh, the, interesting how we've seen this fall, uh, this past fall and spring where uh, Common App released its data where they've seen uh, a resurgence in international applications uh, up almost across the board uh, in international undergraduate interest in the United States through the Common App. Much of that driven by test optional policies that are giving hope to uh, students from outside the U.S. that might have, might have their one chance to get into top schools that have gone test optional. Uh, but they're the one country that that's kind of sticks out in all that data is there, even this year, there's an 18% drop in Chinese applicants for fall 2021 through Common App. So she's looking at that, uh, that data. She's looking at the, obviously the rhetoric that's come, come, been coming and going between our two countries over the last four or five years. And she also uh, reveals some majority of American support for uh, that actually now support limits on Chinese students and U at U.S. colleges. And that's according to Pew Research Center survey released last week, where 55% of respondents told Pew they favored restrictions on Chinese students with one in five strongly in support. So that's, uh, that's troubling uh, when you think about it on the broader scale. Um, but that, is that to say that those are uh, exclusive? And a lot of that has probably the, the majority opinions there have been driven a lot by the rhetoric of the last four or five years about Chinese spies and uh, infiltrators and uh, uh, even a congressman getting uh, duped by a, so, uh, by a Chinese spy and having a relationship with her. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that uh, shape public opinion and the reality on campuses is probably a lot different than, uh, than what, we're, what we're talking about here with, the, with this Pew research. But uh, what we look at uh, with the United States uh, re relating to uh, as a premier destination, uh, the, uh, for if, you, if you're familiar with agents agencies in China, they are very prominent uh, part of the educational higher educational uh, system. Uh, our access to that system, uh, but uh, for overseas student looking, students looking to go overseas from China, uh, but. They, their organization, BOSA, Beijing Overseas Studies Service Association, kind of an ag a group of uh, recruitment agents uh, that uh, accredited ones, uh, recently analyzed the preference, and this is Karen's article still, more than 2.3 million prospective students and families who used, its, uh, used their search platform, found that Britain 
has actually uh, edges out the United States as the destination of choice right now. Very interesting, and I haven't seen that kind of data yet uh, that shows that, uh, but certainly uh, the UK has certainly had a surge in Chinese interest over the last few years, as have as has Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, uh, can Canada to a lesser extent, uh, as well as the United States. But uh, they say, the, the one conclusion that uh, this uh, the, that this consultant group says uh, student interest in the U.S. remains, but the demand may be plateauing for the U.S. Uh, but Britain, uh, Britain, one of the reasons there, they I think have seen an advantage, uh, and maybe a, a rising in, in standing among Chinese uh, parents and students is that they made efforts to ensure international students could enter the country during the pandemic, whereas that's been prohibited for, for Chinese students without going through third country quarantines. So, and, and obviously the visa issue that we've just covered. So the, the UK visa system is set up uh, very differently than the US one where students don't go for interviews at the British embassies and consulates overseas. Uh, they apply through uh, a third party visa provider uh, that uh, manages that process, and they obviously the, go the government and the foreign office uh, has to approve those visas for for uh, for students. But there's a third party organization that doesn't require an in-person interview. That that uh, allows the UK to have a, had a much bigger, stronger leg up for last fall, and that will continue again because they have a, a much um, much better, more, more well-defined system in place. So um, I, 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 there's a lot of articles in here. Another one uh, that we're, we're going to put in is uh, that is, is, a, is, a, is from Pew Research Center that says most Americans support tough stance towards China on human rights and economic issues. So no surprises on those, and I think that's been fairly consistent. Uh, then we have um, INTED, one of my uh, favorite groups out there, consulting groups out there that, uh, and service providers on the higher ed scene, international higher ed scene. And they have an article and they have a, a, a series coming up uh, for institutions that you can pre-register for on China and it, it's entitled Chinese Students Want to Hear From You. So there's uh, issues here that this covers. Uh, uh, it talks about some of the issues that were raised in Karen's, Karen's article and the, and the visa, uh, visa access challenges. Uh, then this is, uh, there is some surprising information. Uh, despite all the, the rhetoric and despite all the hurdles that Chinese students have had recently, is um, the same gentleman who, who spearheaded this petition, Andrew Chen uh, from Holren, uh, they've done research with INTED, uh, surveying 20,000 plus Chinese parents last month, 2,000 plus Chinese students uh, that this fall attended uh, classes in China for Syracuse, Rutger, Clark, Babson, Penn State, Tulane, and others in U.S. style classrooms run by CIEE. And we've talked about that option where CIEE, obviously they weren't using their study abroad facilities for students uh, coming uh, that were potentially going to China. So uh, they uh, allowed uh, a num the institution I just referenced to be part of uh, kind of their pop-up uh, study hub uh, that allowed those cohorts to study in person at these centers run by CEIE uh, and take their classes together uh, for their, their first, first year. So that's still going on. So there's 2,000 plus students that took that option. 
so they're also sharing some uh, research um, that they've done on access to the Chinese markets. So that, that's something certainly that tends to point to a more positive outcome uh, or positive, positive future uh, for U.S.-China uh, international student interest relationships. Uh, then you have something that, uh, that, that kind of throws it back to the last four years. Uh, the U.S. Senate passed a bill, uh, unanimous consent bill, uh, in the Senate, uh, not yet been taken up by the House, to uh, target Confucius Institutes. Uh, we've all we've talked about the, that history here in the uh, on the roundup before, on uh, the various institutions who had uh, Confucius Institutes that have had issues related to academic freedom and control by um, Chinese government or influence uh, in who gets invited to campus or who can get pro who, got, who gets protested speak in terms of speakers that might be invited. So there's institutional control issues there for for some of these institutes, and that has forced a number to close. Uh, some of that happened as a result of a 2018 law prohibiting Confuci colleges that host Confucius Institutes from also receiving Department of Defense funding for Chinese language study, as seen as conflicting there. So a number of uh, institutions closed for that reason. Now, this, if this bill becomes law, this, the, what the U.S. Senate bill just approved uh, last Thursday would, would restrict fund colleges hosting Confucius Institutes from receiving all federal funding other than student financial aid, so that would still be uh, allowed, unless the college ensures that the agreements establishing the institute has clear provisions protecting academic freedom and uh, grants the college full managerial authority over the institute. And that's something that typically uh, there's been pushback from, from the Chinese side as those get have uh, been uh, established. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, there's going to be a, a more to come on that front. Uh, there's also, as a result of the last year, in addition to the visas, in addition to uh, the political rhetoric and all these other challenges, there's also been, with uh, we talked about how important agents are in China, uh, agents have been reporting that they are very much what they call neutral to pessimistic about promoting uh, online study with prospective students. And that's uh, as many as 78% of Chinese agents saying they're not interested in making online programs part of their portfolio. This is a Pi News study. Uh, this was uh, in-depth interviews with 25 agencies. And this is part of, uh, part of, part of the fallout from COVID has been those Chinese, Chinese students that were looking to go study in-country not, have not been able to do so. They've been forced to, if they wanted to still go to that country eventually, they had to start online. And a lot of the agents are expressing, based on feedback they're getting from students, uh, significant dissatisfaction with that approach. So we'll see what the future for that lies. Shifting gears to the second question, again, told you we're going to spend a lot of time on China today. Uh, the second one is um, an article that came out from, uh, in full disclosure, a former employer uh, that I did consulting with uh, for a number of years, uh, Platform Q Education. Uh, but for those that have, uh, who knew it under College Week Live as a different name brand, uh, uh, that's the parent company, Platform Q Education. Uh, their service now is uh, private platform services transferred into what they call into a new brand. It's branded differently, called Conduit, uh, and that's been something that they've used to for institutions to hold kind of that have their own environments, private online environments uh, for events uh, to invite students in to uh, have content available all the time. 
Uh, and they've certainly seen uh, back in the spring when everything was going online, for, even for domestic students, uh, just domestic admissions offices, where uh, they needed to have admitted student events, uh, yield events in the, in the spring and early summer, uh, that uh, they got a lot of new business as a result uh, of that kind of need for uh, institutions to have these virtual events available. So they asked the question, is it time for digital first admissions? And certainly it's under the guise of the truth about stealth and stealth applicants, stealth interest uh, of, in terms of prospective students who visit your website and uh, may never inquire formally or apply because uh, they, they didn't like what they saw. So uh, they don't even become actual inquiries in your mind. Uh, the, fat, the presence of stealth applicants in that these are the first time you actually ever hear about a student is uh, that know that they're of inter interested in your institution is when they apply for admission. So that's what that stealth applicant trend came from. Uh, so they make the case here. What if I told you that's in, in the article? What if I told you that your stealth applicants were never, never stealth, just weren't paying attention and tracking uh, when they were engaging with your institution di digitally? And obviously, their tracking is 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 the piece. You're always on. Uh, if you have, uh, you, you, unless you have specific IP addresses and have the time and, and staffing to go investigate all that and know that, oh, this student has been on our website five or six times before they apply, no one's doing that, I guarantee you. So, uh, but what is, what is imp 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 I think, an important piece of the puzzle here that I think has great value for institutions in terms of an overall strategy. And I talk about this in my current series uh, for IDP Connect on uh, the six P's of uh, strategic international enrollment management that I'm branding now as part of my services uh, for uh, SMIE Consulting uh, is this what I call this um, the, these six P's are what where the, where it, it, you need a, a much bigger picture when you're looking at the overall student international international student experience at your campuses kind of a cradle to grave prospect to alumni and how their experiences impact their overall belief and, and value that they place on the institution. But what, one of the, what we're talking about here is having a strategy, having a plan, having platforms in place. Uh, that's one of the six P's, planning and pl to platforms, uh, that uh, you have uh, available content to uh, your prospective student audiences that is not just uh, words on a page, it's video. Uh, video that tells stories uh, is uh, institutional branding uh, that is uh, helping future students see current students living out uh, their day-to-day uh, -day experiences. And that's something I think not a lot of schools do and have available, certainly those that are on a, a fairly pricey platform like uh, Conduit certainly can have that availability to, for 24-7 content, but you can do that in other ways too in terms of how that video content is hosted on your site, uh, how connected your social channels are in terms of that video content and to provide it on a regular basis, on a 24-7 basis, which is basically where how students around the world find us, find our information, and having a streaming strategy, and that's one of the articles that, uh, one of the sections of this article that I think are important. Uh, it's not just web strategy, not just social strategy, but a streaming strategy, uh, digital marketing strategy. So, uh, and that's, that's based on the simple fact that 80% of internet traffic is video related. And institutions that don't have strong video presence 
are missed are missing opportunities to connect with your with your future students. So whether you need 24/7 streaming video content, I think that's a very easy answer. Yes, you do. Uh, but uh, if you don't have it, it's how do you generate it and uh, what are the important features you need to have as part of that strategy. So that's something I work with, uh, with, work with my clients on every day in terms of developing the kinds of messages and who's telling that message as part of that video strategy. Um, and particularly now in a, in a pandemic-filled world where uh, your current students are your best advocates. They always have been, but even more so now that in terms of being able to tell that story of how their experiences have been studying remotely, being on your campus, uh, attending classes in a hybrid format, whatever the case may be, they need to be able to tell that story for you, for the believability factor to really be there for future students. Now where the believability is probably at its coming to a nadir uh, is in China. Uh, when it comes to um, beliefs are about international students. Uh, we've talked at length here on the Roundup. This is question number three. Has China become fed up with international students? And well, this is going to be a fairly short one, but it is, uh, China has become, over the last uh, five, ten years, uh, a much more highly sought after or uh, attractive option for those that want to study in English in a, in a country that is booming uh, and has uh, spent a lot of money and uh, expended a lot of soft power uh, to make itself an attractive place for international students. Uh, this is part of China's efforts to become uh, uh, much more prominent on the global stage in terms of uh, their uh, universities that are ranked. Um, we've shared also in our newsletter this week uh, a new emerging countries rankings that Times Higher Ed put out uh, that uh, has the majority of the top 10, 7 out of 10, top 10 are Chinese institutions, universities. I think as a country they probably would, would not, though they will always want to be on a top 10 list and monopolize that kind of a list, they would rather be doing that on the global, global rankings of all universities, including all Western nations. Uh, they're not there yet um, and have a long way to go, but their, their plan has been to expand the prestige of their universities. Part of, the, part of what they've been doing over the last 10, 15 years has been bringing more international students in. And a lot of this is driven by uh, BRI initiatives, Belt and Road initiatives, uh, the money that uh, Chinese government has spent uh, building up infrastructure in South and East Asia, throughout Africa, and even into uh, Central Asia and, um, and Europe now. So we've, we've documented that here before, but you're also seeing the scholarship dollars that they've spent to bring students in, from, particularly from developing countries. And there might be a, a, a butting of heads uh, happening here now, and a pushback from uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese, not necessarily institutions, but certainly from maybe general public, uh, that there's actually been a, a measure introduced um, uh, to three, uh, brought up three issues meant to curb what he calls indiscriminate acceptance of international students into the country's universities. Uh, this, is, uh, this article is coming from a uh, Chinese publication, The Beijinger, uh, and then there's another from uh, Global Times uh, out of, uh, I think this one might be Singapore, may, might be the U.S., uh, the uh, South China edition. Uh, but this also says Chinese political advisor proposes to tighten admission standards for international students. And this one is, uh, this proposal was made by Gao Yan Ning, chairman of Hebei Ocean Shipping Company in Hebei province and also a member of the National Committee on Chinese People Political Consultative Conference. 
Yes, uh, wonderful titles that they have here. And he's proposing uh, that all international students should meet the re required credits for admission with the exception of those funded by foreign governments who can have lower admission scores. Chinese universities should not blindly pursue a quota of enrolled students while ignoring the quality of students compromising the reputation of national academia and breaching education rights. He also highlighted the need to standardize and optimize a scholarship policy for international students in China. So there's definitely pushback on whether or not this gains any traction. Uh, it's certainly, we're not sure on whether it will or not, but that uh, there's been a hashtag around this campaign that has uh, gained 140 million views on China's uh, Twitter-like Sina Weibo as of Sunday last week. Uh, that uh, so Chinese netizens are sharing their support for this proposal, saying that international students and domestic students should be treated equally. Uh, and that uh, is uh, kind of a pushback on perhaps the uh, more deluxe level of services that are available for international students uh, on Chinese campuses compared to Chinese uh, uh, students that attend Chinese universities, that they're not given this. Chinese students are given far fewer benefits and, uh, uh, than their overseas counterparts. So interesting, uh, interesting perspective on international education as it's happening in China and uh, perhaps uh, coming to uh, the ch uh, signs that China is becoming fed up with international students, or at least this proposal has and some of the, some of the social feedback that uh, whether you can take it with a grain of salt or not uh, is another story. But certainly a lot to, lot to take in this week and China is certainly a big part of that coming and going. Uh, but we'll certainly keep you in the loop on all that's happening uh, in China as it will impact uh, your potential students coming to your campus. So thanks again for being a part of the Roundup this week. Uh, looking forward to connecting with you again in the days and weeks to come. Have a wonderful day. Cheers.